PhDs at Work podcast, session five. Welcome again to PhDs at Work, the podcast. I am Michelle Erickson, founder and your host. And today we're speaking with David Hartke. David was our Week in the Life guest blogger back in October, and he is a senior manager of engineering at LinkedIn. And this is, well, you know, I think this is a great podcast. It There's something for everyone here. It really doesn't matter what field you work in or you're interested in. Um, there, there's some really good takeaways in terms of career management and progression. We speak a great deal about the recruiting process. Part of that is because on his week in the life, David spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, the hiring process since his group is in a period of growth. And part of it is because he works on the machine learning jobs recommendation tool for LinkedIn. But regardless, you know, we really spend a, a good amount of time looking at the recruiting process as a whole, what it looks like on the company side, some of the issues, challenges, and, and advantages of the introduction of technology to that process. And for those of you who are interested in data science as a career or moving into that field, David has some great tips for ways to break in. All of the information, links, references, etc. will be available in the show notes on our website. And now I'm just going to drop you into the middle of the conversation. This is, uh, I just asked David the question of how he thought about his career trajectory, whether it made sense, uh, if it had all gone as planned, if uh, the vision, you know, looking in the rear view mirror was indeed indicative of the planning and thought that had gone into the process at the beginning of the journey. And this is what he had to say. Uh, they're all sort of haphazard, but they all make sense in retrospect. So um, I'm impulsive sometimes and uh, will decide that I need to change and uh, make changes. And, and they all worked out. I got lucky. So knock on wood. Is that what happened when you left your, as you say, you left your cushy academic job to join this, uh, you became the third man on a three-person startup? Well, that, that was, an impulsive thing? Or, I mean, that's pretty big. No, that was, that was, a, that was a, a life choice because um, when I was uh, a graduate student, um, I promised myself I would never be a slave to soft money. And uh, because I, I, I all saw how people that were on soft money were treated uh, poorly compared to people with tenure. And so uh, when I ended up at Berkeley, I was on a soft money position. It's fine. A lot of people do that for their entire careers. But I knew that wasn't for me uh, just because uh, – so I made a pact with myself that after some period of time, uh, I wasn't going to stay on a soft money type position. And, and then um, I didn't want to leave the Bay Area. And um, so I was kind of – I had this, you know, 10-year plan and I had made this promise to myself and I didn't want to move, so I had to do something. Is soft money, for those of us who aren't in the sciences, is soft money grant-based funding? Yeah, so uh, soft money position is where you your entire salary is based on grants. So we write our own grants and the people in my group have always been successful in getting new grants. So all of the people that I've, I worked with in the past who main stayed at the lab still have grants, but 
there's a little bit of stress involved, and there's also the idea that um, tenure allows you to um, a little bit of freedom in that you can switch research topics and go and work on unpopular stuff. And most people abuse it, but it also allows you. A lot of people abuse it, but it does allow you to be more exploratory and more risk-taking in your research. And when you're on a soft money, you have to be less exploratory and less risk-taking. So I just never wanted to be in that situation because um, it's uh, it's not good for a free-spirited mind to where you, you have to think about your paycheck. So obviously, uh, tenured professors still need to think about their paychecks. There's a little, some perks involved in in the sciences and having a, a grant, you don't have to work in the summers and um, you have your course loads reduced. But at the end of the day, uh, you can take risks that you can't take when you actually have to generate your paycheck by getting grants. Yeah, that's uh, sort of the classic conundrum, right? Where you, at a certain point, you spend 50% of your time looking for funding and 50% of your time actually doing the work that was your goal in the first place it can yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um it's funny I, I just saw a bunch of my friends though that were still doing physics and uh it kind of confirmed my decision to leave because uh we went to the, i went to this wedding a couple weeks ago and uh and uh um, it was out on long island where i was doing the uh, uh the particle physics work and uh they're still working on the same things and talking about the same problems and I, I, I realize they've moved a little bit, but it's I couldn't still be doing that. Um, you know, I have to change. I have to do something new, and you know, it's uh, uh, I don't have the commitment to you know work on the same problem for thirty years. So now, do you view that specialization that you, since you still follow it, do you view it more as a passion project than as a professional project? Oh, it's just, it's just, it's just fun to watch, right? So you know, my uh, my last experiment was ice cube which was a neutrino telescope at the south pole and it was about 20 years in construction and uh, uh between the various prototypes funding cycle construction and it was a very grandiose goal is basically how do you measure or it was a building a new type of telescope using neutrinos rather than photons to measure distant galaxies and whatnot and it took 20 years but just last year they announced that it finally worked after 20 years of, of, of concerted effort by a bunch of people, uh, they finally found the first evidence of what they were looking for. And it was a pretty exciting moment. And, um, you know, I'm really happy for all my colleagues. And uh, it was, you know, a great monumental achievement. Probably not Nobel Prize worthy yet, but, but, but close. Um, it's very exciting to watch that, especially when you worked on a, big, a small piece of it and just to see your work come to fruition. Mm, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would really like to hear more about the work that you're doing today. Um, and specifically, I thought it was so interesting to hear so much of your work around recruiting, which you, you did mention that it was an unusual week for you and that you spent an unusually high number of hours on recruiting. But I thought it was so interesting because often when people are on the other side and they're applying, you know, it's this, it's this black box of mystery. No one really understands the decisions go, that go into it or who sees what and at what stage, and um, and you really, you really, well, you really demonstrated that it's a labor-intensive process on both sides of the aisle, and um, and the yeah. recruiting process at LinkedIn sounds really interesting. It uh, sounds a little progressive. Well, I mean, you, first of all, you have to understand that we are growing. So uh, LinkedIn is is lucky to be a growing business because people love our products and. 
Um, it's, you know, uh, we are expanding our engineering and data science workforce quite dramatically. So whenever you're in an expanding environment, you're going to spend a lot of time recruiting because you're not just doing attrition replacement, you're also growing your teams. And so that's why I think just the general steady state here is to be recruiting a lot. Uh, but it turns out that our little team uh, is uh, also having a, a big, a bigger growth spurt. So we are having to devote more and more of our energies to the recruiting process. And and the the reason it is quite uh, uh, there's a lot of work is because it's 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 not haphazard at all. It's it's a very they they've come up with a very scientific process for recruiting here, and it's to ensure first of all that. All of our hires are, are very high quality and also that there's some consistency among the team. So, um, uh, in, you know, when I worked at the startup and we were recruiting, it was very haphazard. And, and so I remember my first hire, I, when I first became a manager, I had to hire my first two, two, two people. So I talked to the HR guy and I'm like, oh, I need, and I was the only one doing this sort of work at that company. So I had no help basically in terms of no one could help me vet candidates and no one really knew what I wanted to do. So I was creating from scratch and I went to the HR guy and I'm like, okay, I'm going to run a job ad and let's do one, one, you know, regular position and one intern position. And uh, we wrote some ads and posted them on Craigslist and uh, got a bunch of candidates and I'd never seen resumes before. And then I brought some people in and, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know it was going to be successful. I got really lucky. Um, uh, my first lesson was that the quality of the applicants for the intern position were much higher than the quality of the applicants for the experience position. And I think that's that really? there's some, well, there's some famous uh, psychological effect that, uh, people tend to underestimate their skills so um it was it's, it's just a very but i don't i forgot the name of the effect but you'll have to look it up later so uh anyway so I, I did my first two hires and it was a completely haphazard process and uh i'm still working with the, the same two guys so uh it, it you know they really built the core of our team so that, that was complete luck uh, but then we had a little bit of process around it um we would you know we'd have two or three people interview each candidate and we had random questions and, and, you know, it was just, just, you know, it was just, just, just haphazard. But when, when you come to a company like LinkedIn, uh, they're, you know, have a very organized process where they have different stages, different types of recruiters have different roles in the process, reaching out to candidates, sourcing them. Then you have, you know, people, backend recruiters that uh, get candidates to the interview process. You have phone screens, you have on-sites, you have committees that review things. And, and the one nice thing is that, since we all have to agree on a hire, that means that if we get a candidate here and and and, and they've gone through this 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 process, then they're good enough to work anywhere in, in the company. So, um, it, you know, you do filter out a lot of good people because you know somebody's going to say, "Oh, I have a red flag," and 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 those people, you know, are uh, some sometimes maybe unfairly rejected but the people that get through are of sufficiently high quality they have a good cultural match and um and they they, they tend to work out well so i think this uh, process here although it does take a lot of work actually benefits the company quite a bit yeah i've heard of these uh these these kinds of interview processes that require unanimous yeses across the board are, are quite well known you must go through a very high number of candidates to 
with that process? Uh, it's not a unanimous yes. Um, so it's not like it's not like the uh, the fraternity system with the one black ball. Um, but it's there's various stages, right? So um, 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 by the time they get on site, um, they're usually pretty good, and that's where they, they it's very labor intensive. So. I think I, I just got out of an interview. That's why I, I couldn't do this an hour ago. And uh, I think it was like his sixth or seventh interview of the day. And, he, um, you know, and, and then sometimes we have two interviewers. So it's up to 10 people um, per candidate each time they come in. So um, and then uh, it doesn't have to be unanimous, but uh, uh, it's there has to be a good consensus. That makes sense. The other thing you mentioned was that it was a very effective process, that you would have multiple hiring managers interview candidates simultaneously. Yeah. So that's, that's that just a skills aligned or is that you said that if someone comes in, they can work anywhere in the company. Is this a general is the process looking for a general cultural fit and then looking to place by skills later or how does that work? Um, well, people do have more or less skills in certain areas. So, um, you do, uh, target them for certain roles, but you, uh, you want them to be able to work with multiple different teams and multiple different roles. You know, like I said, a lot of people, uh, if you do one thing for a couple of years, you want to do something else. You want to, you want to hire people that want to do something else after a couple of years, so um, uh, you don't want to hire narrowly focused people that only want to do one thing for the rest of their career. You want people that have you know enough intellectual curiosity to try to go do something new where they don't have skills. So um, you know sometimes you do your best work um, when when you don't really know what's been done before. So um, it's 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 often fun to take people and put them in in new roles where. Um, they don't have any experience or background and they'll come up with creative solutions. You know, a lot of people have tried before, but they'll come up with a creative solution that, that, that no one's tried before. So uh, there, there's a fine line between hiring people that are too experienced in a particular domain and, and hiring people that have no experience in a particular domain. Yes, naivety can be very, very powerful, especially yeah. when you're uh, trying to get something done that there's been a lot of resistance around for a long time. Yeah, and one thing you know, like, I'm a little biased since I'm a I, I'm not a computer scientist, and I'm working with a bunch of computer scientists, so I I tend to look at uh, people that have more diverse backgrounds and rate them a little higher, probably unfairly. Um, but this is, I think, true. There's some you know research about this. There's a interesting paper from uh, uh, Northwestern about how elite firms hire and uh, uh, Goldman Sachs of the world. And you know they tend to hire from the top four Ivy League firms. So if you if you want to get hired to Goldman Sachs, you better go to Princeton, Yale, Harvard, or I'm not sure what the fourth one is. I don't know if it's Stanford, but it's, there's a top four schools they hire from. But there's a few people at Goldman Sachs that actually came from Rutgers or, or a school like that. And those people, when they're reviewing candidates, tend to select people that have non-traditional backgrounds like themselves. And so uh, it's kind of a crapshoot when you're applying at Goldman Sachs. Whether you wind up in the pile to be reviewed by the Harvard grad or the pile to be reviewed by the Rutgers grad, uh, but it's uh, you know each of us brings our own biases sometimes, and uh, but uh, that's why it's nice to have a lot of different people looking at these people at, at at the candidates so that you uh, don't let anyone's bias prevent you from seeing good good candidates. LinkedIn, it's LinkedIn, right? At this point, 
it's really the place where you have to be if you want to be a professional and network among professionals. And increasingly, it's where so many jobs, so many firms are recruiting from. You're doing this relevance matching system where you match people with jobs that are open based on their profiles and their skill sets. What does that look like on the back end? Yeah, we, we're just a sort of a, a, a matchmaking platform in this context. So um, our role is to, um, I, I, see my, I think my role is to, I try to show people jobs where they will have the greatest chance of success in their careers. And whether or not they choose to apply to them is up to them. So I'm not actually, you know, we're not actually part of the recruiting process. Um, once you apply, uh, it's, it's a whole different ballgame, but we want to surface connections that you may not normally see. Um, so a lot of people, either recruiters looking for candidates or candidates looking for jobs, are a little bit too narrow focused in what they look for. So the nice thing about an algorithmic approach is that we can see um, people have been successful in the past when they've made this particular career transition. So we have this this treasure trove of data about um, people's you know professional profiles um, we, we we see which jobs people apply to um, we see to a, to a certain extent whether or not they're successful in those applications so based on that particular data we can um, use modern tools of data mining and machine learning to see what are the hidden patterns that uh, predict success when looking for a new job, applying for a new job. And, uh, ultimate, and also, you know, we, we hope that we can guide you into a better career. You may not have looked for a job with a company in a different industry, but we may recommend that job. You take that, and that broadens your, 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 you know, your knowledge, your experience level, and hopefully it drives you towards a better career. So um, that's our, our, our goal with the recommendation platforms. These are just recommendations. So, so I mean, we have, in terms of the job seeker, we have uh, recommendations, which are um, sort of, you know, we send emails, Jimby emails, jobs you may be interested in. Or, uh, or if you go to the jobs tab on, on the LinkedIn.com, those are recommendations. We also allow you to search specifically for jobs. So sometimes our recommendations don't actually work. For instance, let's say I decided today I am no longer interested in doing machine learning and data mining, but instead I want to start a restaurant or, or go work at a restaurant. Uh, a recommendation algorithm is not able to do that. I would actually need to explicitly go out and search for those jobs and type in keywords. So um, there's a limited scope to what we can do. Um, but um, you know, my philosophy is that with uh, both you know re- recommending jobs to candidates and recommending candidates to um, companies is that um, this is a hard game. You know, you don't have time to go out and read every single job posting that comes out there. And, you know, there, what, I think there are 5 million job postings in the United States alone that are on the internet. You don't have time to read all 5 million. So there is a transition that's going to happen where um, um, uh, recommendation platforms and matching services like the, the one that we have are becoming more and more important in, in the labor market. And um, I think we're lucky in that uh, people trust our product. We have a good product. So like you said, it is used by a lot of people. But we have to be constantly on guard um, to make sure that the, the platform works for everybody. Otherwise, there will, will be a competitor that will come in and, and, and take, take, take our, uh, our, our, our prominent role. 
Yeah. I loved the you you have this great quote in your week in the life where you say, I don't think I should have to find my next job. The next job should find me. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, it's, yeah, there's just too, too much, you know, like, like, like I said, it, when you're actually actively looking for a job, it's, it's a great emotional investment. Um, and um, so I've been there where I need to get a job and it, it really, really is not good. But a lot of people are, you know, you should go read um, um, the, the LinkedIn founder, uh, Reed Hoffman has a book, The Startup of You. And it's about how you should approach your career and think of yourself as a startup. And you should think of, he has like, you know, plan A, plan B, and plan, I think it's X. And plan A is what you're doing now. Plan B is what you want to be doing next. And plan X, I don't know if it's plan X. This is your backup plan. This is your emergency plan in case everything fails. So it's kind of good advice in that you should always be kind of looking for a job um, because something better may come along, an opportunity may come along, but you don't want to be actively looking for a job because then you're not focused on what you're doing now. So there's a fine line between um, you know being 100% focused on your current job and thinking about what your next play is. And so that's where sort of recommendations and passive passive recommendations come in. Nice is that um, you know we can within. 10 seconds every week, you can see, are there any openings out there that are, are worth my time? And that's, for a lot of people, that's all the job seeking they need to do every week is 10 seconds. And depending on uh, uh, how much you, 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 you like your current job, you may spend more time or less time. Um, we have a busy season coming up because uh, uh, January is all a busy, se- busy season for job seekers. And I think uh, my theory is that uh, people go home for the holidays and their relatives make fun of them. So they go out and try, to get, <laughs> try to get a new job. I've never actually validated that. Does that happen? You go home and they're like, Dave, more machine learning? Really? Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, when, when do you need a real job? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so. Yeah, you know, I've actually read Reed Hoffman's book. I think it's great. There's so many good nuggets. And uh, what, I did, what I did know about him was that he was actually in a PhD program briefly. Oh, really? I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he talks about it in, I don't know, maybe the intro or at some point in the book. He talks about how uh, he was in this PhD program and uh, when he, you know, he realized that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life focusing on one simple, you know, on one particular problem, that there were a lot of other problems that he wanted to, that he really liked the problem solving aspect. And, you know, gosh, I, it was a while ago that I read this, so I, I hope that I'm not. Yeah, that's definitely You know, I, I think it's, uh, you, you see a lot in, in resumes here in Silicon Valley because there are so many PhD dropouts that have done so well. You know, think of the Google guys and, and I guess yeah. as well. A lot of people on their resume are very loud and proud about dropping out of PhD programs. So people that actually have PhDs will kind of bury the information maybe at the bottom of the resume. But you know, a lot of people that drop out will be like, you dropped out of PhD program as if that's their greatest accomplishment in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some article somewhere about the PayPal mafia, how they used to pride themselves saying they did they would never hire a PhD. They would only hire people who are smart enough to drop out of a PhD. Oh, yeah. That's that's true, yeah. No, that's yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. They missed out on all the fun. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends on your program. Um, but uh yeah, so he, I, I'm, I'm reasonably certain that I'm remembering this correctly. I, I, I think you are. Probably so, so I, I, go back and double check it. But he talked about, you know, how he thought that 
this ability to hold complexity in his head would be a great asset as he transitioned out and looked for employment outside. And in fact, it, it was the complete opposite, uh, that people were not interested. They were looking for hard and fast experience and core skills. And it was a bit of a rude awakening. Yeah, the, 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 but for what we do, though, um, in some of these data mining problems, they, they take a long time. And, and you need to be able to establish a goal and work on it for months at a time often before you see any payoff. So uh, a lot of the problems that we're doing here really do take sort of dedication to doing something well over a long period of time. And that's why you know, I, I, we do hire a lot of PhDs is because they're really trained to do that. Take, take some problem um, that's really hard, that's going to take them many months, plan their time, work diligently, and then it, the payoff may not come for three to six months. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a hard way to work. And also a lot of the problems we do are very open-ended, which is, you know, if you're doing a model, if you're doing a predictive model or, let's say, a, uh, you know, our, our matching model, we can, we can always make it better. And you, you have to decide on a daily basis, do I, do I, do I work to make it better? Or, or is it worth my time to make it better? What strategies can I do? How much improvement will they give me? But there is no right answer. You're never, ever done when you're doing some of these machine learning recommendation models. They can always get better. So uh, it, it's, it's uh, time management. Um, it's, a, it's a hard part of what we do. Is that time management question influenced around things like revenue generation or KPIs? Are those part of the decision-making process or is it is it is it purely it almost feels academic in nature where you say is this good enough should I stop here or do you have external influences um you you have measurable so we we like I mentioned one of the posts we have a very sophisticated testing framework um and so um we do have measurable deliverables, but we don't have, you know, my team doesn't have any sort of specific goals. Uh, we must generate X billion page views this month. Um, they're not that, that way. We, we do say, you know, we want to improve by 10% um, in terms of page views uh, or views or let's say applications per job impression. How do we get there? And there's a many different strategies we can take to do that. Some of them are quicker than others, but um, we do have a pretty good culture of, of, uh, basic research versus actual business metrics. We do try to publish a lot. Um, we just submitted a paper. Me and one of my colleagues submitted a paper, uh, and it, it's fun stuff. So it's, it's encouraged that we we innovate, we publish, we patent uh, some of the fun stuff that you get to do when you're an academic. But uh, you can't work on problems that take two years to solve because there are you know uh, demands placed on you by shareholders and public markets. So uh, you have to pick problems that can be solved in, you know, six-month time scales, not two-year time scales. Yeah. It sounds like you found a really nice medium, though, between this, this um, you know, the, the things that are nice about academia, which is the chance to really investigate a problem in depth with nuance. Uh, and then, on the other hand, this ability to produce something and put it out in the world and see how it benefits a larger population and gets results. It sounds like you've got a really nice balance of those two elements. Yeah, I mean, that's why data science, which is sort of the field I consider myself, although I'm not officially classified as a data scientist anymore, but uh, it's pretty popular. We, you know, we have a lot of people coming from various backgrounds, 
neuroscience, computer science, obviously, physics, statistics. They're, they're getting into this field because, you know, a lot of the models and the math, the stuff that we love is the same, but we're solving real world problems, you know, like, you know, what, what's the best job match or, um, uh, you know, what are the best products to recommend or what's the best content to recommend or, you know, what's the next movie I'm going to watch. Um, these are, you know, real world problems that have real world impact on people. So, it's you know taking the things we love, the math and the esoteric nature, but then applying them to real world problems. That's that's why I think a data science is, is a pretty popular profession. You know, it's, it's at, for the first time uh, uh, last year, um, I, I uh, you know we had we had I was trying to hire somebody and he had an offer from Wall Street to work as a quant and an offer to come work as a data scientist and he chose to be a data scientist. And that tie never went in favor of data science before. People always wanted to be a quant on Wall Street because that's where the big bucks are. But I think nah, they lock you in a dark room <laughs> in the back of the office. No yeah. one wants to be a quant. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, but no, but that used to be what everyone wanted to do. So you know, I have a, a bunch of friends who went went down that path. But now I think people realize that some of the stuff we're doing here is 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 uh, really kind of cool, and it's it's making an impact in people's lives. Yeah, it seems like there's this interesting moment happening also. And, and I don't know, I could be exaggerating this, but when you think about the impact of technology, and, and here I'm thinking about it as it's applied to sort of job search, job matching specifically, there's this huge argument in HR circles that the hiring process is broken and a lot of the finger pointing, I mean, there's a lot of fingers being pointed in a lot of different directions, but one of the primary places is in the uh, technology that's been implemented to weed out resumes early on before they ever reach a recruiter or they ever reach a hiring manager. That the technology is not, uh, you know, it's not nimble enough, it's not nuanced enough. I suppose any technology is only the byproduct of those who are creating it, uh, so maybe it's the thought process. But the technology has actually hurt uh, the ability to find good candidates and place them. And it sounds like with data science and machine learning, we're starting to see that a turn in the corner where finally there's an ability to gather more information to have greater nuance uh, to produce better results that theoretically, I would guess, are programmed to overcome human bias. I don't know. Do you think that's too – have I gone too far in no, so, hypothesizing? So it's funny you bring this up. So the, 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 the main proponent of this theory is a guy named Peter Capelli from Wharton. And he wrote a book called Why Good People Can't Get Jobs. Um, and it's a, it's a short book. Uh, I recommend everyone read it. In fact, every time I hire somebody now, I, I send them that book on Amazon before they start because I want everyone to read that book. And it is an indictment of technology in the recruiting space. And his basic hypothesis is that uh, these tools that we've built, which are – he mostly blames what, what are known as applicant tracking systems – um, these tools have allowed or, or prevented a lot of really good people from, from, from getting uh, an interview or getting their foot in the door at all. And what happens uh, a lot of times is that um, uh, people will, will do Boolean queries on their applicant pool and look for someone that has every single skill that's listed in the position. They'll find they have no, nobody and then they'll complain and say, you know, there's nobody good. But there are a bunch of good people that, you know, may be missing a skill. They may have forgotten to write it down, things like that. So, you know, he, you know, he, has, he has this uh, theory that by the time you 
uh, apply every required skill to every applicant, you get zero applicants. And this is actually true. If you, if you measure it, if you take any job out there, except for the most basic job, and look at all the required skills and calculate the number of people in the world that have all those required skills, the answer is always zero. So this is just people using the tool wrong. They're using the tool uh, as it should not be used. It's, you know, finding good people is not a database query. It's a, it takes some, some ingenuity. And, and the big problem is, uh, part of the problem that he identifies in his book, and which is also a problem, is that uh, during the Great Recession, uh, the first thing that got cut was the HR department, especially the people in HR responsible for hiring. And it used to be that each firm had their own set of um, um, people that did recruiting for them, that knew their business, that knew their industry, and that knew what good people what good people look like for their industry, or what good entry level candidates that could grow into good people look like. Uh, when we had the Great Recession, everyone laid off their HR departments, and after the Great Recession, a lot of people never hired the HR departments back, and they started relying more on technology or rely on outsourcing firms that, that do resume screening for you. And you lost that expertise, that sort of human touch that used to make the whole system work. So the question is whether or not machine learning recommendations, stuff that we're doing, can actually replace that human touch. I don't know. It's, it, 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 it could be a good tool, and we try to build our tools to, to think more like a human. Um, but one thing that's, that's really important to know is that um, uh, no data algorithm can ever predict who's going to be a good hire. And uh, it, because ultimately what makes you a good hire is cultural fit. It's how well you get along with your coworkers. It's how well you get along with the environment you're working in. These things have been scientifically proven to be the most important um, factor in whether or not you do well. And this is something we can't measure using uh, advanced machine learning models. Um, you know, I just saw a talk by chief scientist of Guild, um, and she talked about the best predictor of software engineer success was whether they're endogenously motivated. Some people are, are, are motivated exogenously by external forces, but some people have inner drive. And, and, and that is what ultimately makes you successful in certain job functions, but you can't measure that uh, using algorithms. So, so that's something that you, know, you need still the human touch in the hiring process. It's nice to hear someone who is working in that space advocate for the... It's it's nice to hear someone advocating for that human touch. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, our our job is only to make it easier for you to identify the people that you should be talking to. Um, and you know, the, the 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 problem with the whole the you know, it used to be when when I was a kid, um, if you want to apply for a job, you had to print out your resume, and and you had to print out that expensive expensive paper. It cost like ten cents per resume, and then you had to mail it in. So I think stamps were like twenty eight cents. So this is like. <clears throat> 38 cents in an hour per resume. And so people didn't apply to too many jobs. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, you, you know, each resume got read carefully because you didn't get too many in the mail. Uh, and then the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the electronic application started, which is actually a good thing because it allows you to get a more diverse set of candidates. But that meant uh, for a single opening, you would get more and more uh, uh, resumes. And uh, eventually you needed to resort to some sort of technological solution to read those resumes for you because it's not humanly possible to read all those resumes. Um, but, you know, this has happened in another uh, context uh, in our lives' times, and, and they're also dealing with problems. If you think about college applications, uh, when I was a kid, we had to fill out paper college applications, and they made you write an essay for every single college. 
Um, so it was a different essay for every single college. So I think when I applied to school, it was, you know, University of California and maybe two other schools um, because it was, it was painful to apply to a college. Um, but then they introduced something called the common application and they introduced the single essay in the common application. So all you had to do was check the box and borrow a hundred bucks from your parents and you could apply to any college. So I think the, you know, medium number of applications per student has gone from like six to 20. I'm just making, I, I think the numbers are in those ballpark. And so now these universities are dealing with this, this onslaught of, 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 of applications, and um, I, I, I'm on the alumni interview committee for Duke. And in the 10 years that I've been doing that, the number of interviews we have to do has, has gone up by something like a factor of five. Because five times as many people apply now than they did 10 years ago. Because before there was sort of a self-selection and um, uh, sort of a, a higher expense to apply. And, and so now you just flooded with applications. And it makes the whole process um, more difficult. And uh, – you know, colleges are actually changing how they sift through and read the resume, uh, the, the applications. They are no, you know, some colleges are no longer interviewing every candidate because of just the onslaught. So technology makes things better in some ways, but it also makes things worse in that um, uh, you get rid of some of the self-selection that used to be involved when, 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 when before everything became so easy. Are these universities implementing similar systems to those that you're creating at LinkedIn that create some kind of profile matching process between candidates and the current university population or desired population? I have not heard of anyone who's done that yet, uh, but I they may not advertise if they do. So it's... Uh, um, so you'll have to go... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that could be fairly contentious. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, yeah, you know, you, a school like Stanford probably gets you know hundred hundred thousand applications now. So uh, do, yeah, do, do all of them get read with the same level of interest? I don't know. Huh. Well, it sounds like if someone is in a field that uses a lot of statistics and math and model building, and they want to make a transition out, similar to what you did. Uh, that maybe walking over to the admissions office and volunteering a few hours to <laughs> think about ways of parsing applications might be a really interesting way to get some early experience on oh, campus. I, I, I don't know, uh, but uh, yeah. So no, I just, just it, it's the other context I use of, of you know where where the race between technology and the ability of humans to process data uh, it, it's 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 a struggle. Yeah, well, it's, there's that similar one, which is the, the there's this it feels like the law is always lagging behind what technology is doing next, right? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of exactly true. Similar thing. Yeah. Do you have any um, quick advice for those who want to move into the data science field? Maybe they are still in at the university, uh, either as a graduate student or on faculty, or perhaps it's just someone looking to make a change and they're in a tangential field. Do you have any? advice on what steps they should take to make themselves more interesting and, and worth a second look to someone like you who's hiring in this space? Yeah, it's, it's, it's changed. You know, I, I, I started doing this about seven years ago. And back then, they had just invented the term data science. And so it was rather easy for me to transition because there weren't any people that actually had that on their, their resume. 
Um, now there, it's a little more of a profession because it's it's you know been recognized as as as, as a sorry about that, uh, recognized as as a as a growth profession. So people have quote unquote, or they have better resumes now. So uh, there are some things you could do though. Uh, obviously, the best thing you could do is to do some. Um, there's a tool called GitHub where you can share code. So if you're doing any cool work in data science, either as coursework or um, uh, uh, as, as work, hobby work, or even work in other fields, you can share it on GitHub and then you can show off the kind of work you do. Uh, there's also something called Kaggle, K-A-G-G-L-E, which is uh, data science competitions. And it's fun to try your hand at some of those and see how well you can do. Um, it's, they're pre- it's pretty hard because it's very competitive and there's a lot of really smart people there, but to sort of learn sort of uh, kind of the problems you'd be dealing with, that's a good, good, good place to start. And then uh, my good fortune was that I, I went to work for a really small startup and uh, startups tend to be a little more forgiving in terms of qualifications, uh, mostly out of necessity. So uh, if you're willing to go work for a pretty small startup, um, it's sometimes you know, easy to become the first or second data scientist Obviously, you don't have anyone to learn from in that case, but you also have a lot of freedom to sort of explore and, and, and uh, you know, teach, it, teach yourself on the job. It's one of those high-risk, high-reward scenarios. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's, there's risk. I mean, they fail, but uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's – uh, Sometimes you know you don't you don't you don't want to take the most stable job. You want to take the job that makes you best for your next job. And and, and a lot of times, if you have a, a very non-standard background, that's the way to go because you can get in and and, and show your chops and, and and demonstrate value in a, 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 a sort of corporate setting. The the, the biggest challenge that the basic basic biggest hesitancy people have for hiring people out of labs, academic labs, is whether or not they can finish. And whether or not they can finish a project in the time scales that we need. So, if you get out in the real and, and go work at a startup, and the startup launches something, even if the product fails, you can point at it and say, "Hey, you know, I started that from scratch. I finished that, and it's pretty good." So uh, that that's going to make you uh, marketable in the in the future. Mm, that's very good. That's that's great. Thank you. Any um, we're, we're we're at our time marker, but do you have any last words or? Last thoughts or anything you wanted to share that we haven't covered? Yeah, I mean, if you if you do want to work in data science, um, shoot me an email and apply for a job. As, as I mentioned, we're always recruiting, so that's the one thing. So, uh, yeah. Um, other than that, uh, no, it's it was fun. Uh, uh, I think it was good to do this exercise this week because uh, it 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 made me look at how I spend my time and uh, uh, are are my time investments paying off. And uh, it's, it's nice to take one week out of your life, even if it's not a normal week, and sort of keep track of what you do and say, how, do, how does what I do on a daily basis help me get to my goals in six months or five years or help my team get to their goals? And so I think it's a, a good exercise. So anyone who you approach in the future, uh, you should you know, play this back for and say, you know, uh, this is good for, for me uh, because I... It's, it's a good way to reflect on, on how you work and what you do and what's important and what's not important. That, yeah, I, that is so true. I think in general it's part of that larger goal-setting process. And how did your week come out? Were you happy with how you saw your time being spent? Did you make adjustments or did you feel pretty good about it? 
Um, no, no, it was, it was fine. It was, it, that was a good week. Um, <laughs> some weeks are better than others. <laughs> yeah, some weeks are better than others. It's, 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 it was a good week. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, um, this week has been a better week than that week, but uh, it's okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, we missed it. <laughs> we'll, we'll catch up with you in a year and maybe you'll tell us, you'll fill us in on, uh, how you've modified that weekly plan since then. David, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Great talking to you, and uh, thanks. Thanks again to David Hartke for taking the time to share his week in the life with us and for uh, taking even more time to speak with us here on the podcast and share his insights on the recruiting process. And thanks to you, our listeners and, and readers in our network, and especially thanks to those of you who've written with feedback and left reviews on iTunes. It means a lot. There's a lot of work that goes into producing this podcast, to producing the website. Everyone who writes is volunteering their time and effort. And it's incredibly helpful and really wonderful when you take the time to let us know how we're doing. Thank you. Before we close, I just want to let you know about two events we have upcoming this week and next. This Wednesday, November 5th in San Francisco. Next week, next Thursday, November 13th in New York City. If you're in either one of these locations, uh, head over to our website, peachesatwork.com and RSVP. You'll have a great time, I promise. And that's a wrap for today. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you here next time and have a great week ahead.